All right, team, we have a special treat today for you. James Altucher joins us now. He's an American hedge fund manager, author, podcaster, entrepreneur. He's founded over 20 companies, and he's host of the James Altucher podcast. Mr. Altucher, hello, sir. Well, so happy to be on your show. I've been, I've been listening ever since back when you were at The Blaze. Wow. How long ago was that? That, that was a while ago. That is a high compliment. That's like... Uh, I left the blaze four years ago, so yeah, and I started almost ten years ago now. So it's been a while, man. But thank you so much for joining us. I know you, like me, are in NYC. Your background book selection that I can see here is is a uh, more impressive than mine, which indicates greater square footage in your apartment. So lucky you, because I'm going stir crazy over here. But how 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 are you? First off, how are you doing in lockdown? You know, for me personally. I I don't like going outside. I don't like traveling. I had all sorts of trips scheduled for March and April, and I was very happy to cancel them. I was going to Austin, Houston, uh, California, Florida, D.C., Winnipeg. All the trips were canceled. I'm so grateful. But I do every day just – I don't know what it is. I just um, – you know, just like you, I've been – reporting and covering this economic lockdown and of course the the virus and it's just horrible the effect on society is so much suffering from you know of course the, of course the virus but also the economic shutdown which affects 300 million people and and you know it's the world's biggest economy seven billion people around the world and so you know i think we all no matter how we are personally we all feel the the herd anxiety of Nobody's working. Nobody's producing. Everyone's scared. Everyone's anxious, and you know, no one, no one is, uh, no one could defend themselves from that. No matter rich or poor, sick or healthy, you're going to feel the anxiety of the world in, in moments like this. How do you think uh, our leadership so far has has responded to this? Where where do you think the balance is? There's obviously the virus and the economy. It feels like there's been a shift to the recognition that the economy can't just be something that we stick in the deep freezer until we decide to thaw it out. What do you, what do you think about what we've done so far with this nationwide lockdown? And, you know, are you following what Europe has done, what different cases have been like there with the, at the nation state level, what Sweden has done in their approach? You know, how, how do you gauge all that? Yeah, Buck, it's, it's a good question. I've been following everything on, um, I've talked to members, I've actually talked to members of the Federal Reserve. The other day I was talking to the deputy chairman of the St. Louis Fed, I've talked to uh, economists like Tyler Cohen from Marginal Rev- Revolution, other economists. Uh, I've talked to the top epidemiologists and immunologists at Imperial College, which was the first one out with all the kind of doom and gloom uh, scenarios and mathematical models. So I've been a little all over the place just trying to figure it out for, for my own audience. And I think I think, you know, the economy is not a light switch. You can't turn it off and then turn it on three months later, expecting it's just gonna it's gonna be just as glowing as as it was before. We've we've done something disastrous here. And you you mentioned a lot of countries. Every single country, and quite frankly, every every single state in the United States has had a different strategy for dealing with this. And you look at countries like Sweden or the Czech Republic or Taiwan, three different countries, three different strategies. None of them did. A lockdown. All of them had their economy returning full force and didn't need, you know, the full stimulus that that we needed. And 
I think it's a shame that we did this economic lockdown when there was absolutely no data to support it. Sure. I, by the way, and this is this is sort of sacrilegious to say, I'm not even so sure there's data to support social distancing. Like you mentioned Sweden, maybe it's just that they naturally social distance because they don't really like each other that much. But they they didn't social distance and they're they're coming back fine. It's not it's not like they were great and it's not like they were bad. They weren't the worst in Europe, but they weren't the best. But I think this I think this pandemic kind of has its natural course. I mean, you probably remember, like in early February, some of the initial mathematical models were even saying up to 140 million deaths worldwide, which was insane. Like, you know, you, you, this is Singapore in total had, I don't know, less than a thousand. And look, you have to say this again, it's like religion. Every death is horrible. We have to acknowledge that. But, you know, people die every day from all sorts of causes. So just setting that aside for a second, it does appear that even the early data from all the initial countries that we were in, that, that the virus was in, the early data was suggesting this virus doubles ex exponentially three or four times and then starts to peak and flatten. There was no way it was going to have uh, a 2% fatality rate worldwide. And now all these recent tests, Santa Clara, California, Chelsea and Massachusetts, other tests are showing that the the, the infectiousness of this is probably 50 to 85 times worse than we thought or greater than we thought, which means that the ultimate fatality rate is much lower. The higher the infection rate, the lower the fatality rate. We're probably looking at a 0.1 to 0.3% fatality rate in order, in other words, you know, a flu, similar to a flu season. Of course, you're not allowed to say also, this is similar to the flu. It's not similar to the flu. The, the, the flu affects children and kills children. This is affecting um, elderly. It's two different demographic groups. So what that means is on the hospitals is that if you end up on a ventilator from this, if you're elderly, you end up spending more days on the ventilator. Hence, if we were going to, if the hospitals were going to be overwhelmed, it, it, it could have caused a problem. But obviously, they weren't overwhelmed, and so that didn't happen. And now they're saying, well, it's because we enacted social distancing principles, but we don't really know. And some states that didn't really do anything have barely any cases or deaths. So, you know, to treat every state as if, oh my gosh, you're not even allowed to go to the grocery store, you know, or else you're going to die. That's just ridiculous. And now the, now the question is, we're not coming back to a new normal. We're coming back to a new abnormal. This has never happened before, and the stimulus has been trillions of dollars more than we even did in the massive stimulus in 2008, 2009. Yeah, so what do you foresee that doing, James? What do you see that doing to the economy? I mean, we're now seeing hundreds of billions of dollars thrown into uh, congressional spending bills. Uh, we, we can't even keep up with it. I mean, it was it was a, a couple. It was a few trillion dollars, and now they've added. It was going to be two hundred and fifty billion, and then it was three hundred billion, and now it's close to half a trillion. You know, four hundred something billion was the final tally. And Chuck Schumer's already saying there's going to be an, a part a part three or a part four to this whole thing. At, at what point have we? How do we know as a government, as a country, we've spent too much money? What does that feel like? What does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question because because. There's going to be a before. It's not like in 2008, 2009, where there wasn't a sudden before and after. Like, it wasn't like the economy was bad in 2008, and then as soon as the stimulus was passed, 
and and it, it was good. It was there was the economy never was closed then, so the economy went from bad to having some stimulus to them becoming good. But right now we're all being forced, almost literally at gunpoint. Like they'll arrest you if you don't if you if you you know go outside without a mask or whatever, don't obey proper social distancing. So. So, sooner or later, they're going to reopen the economy all across the U.S. And then at the same time, the stimulus is going to be hitting. We've never had an experience like that where everybody sort of walks out of their home and, and sees daylight and money is just showering down from the sky. And, of course, there's a risk of hyperinflation. But right now we're in a deflationary period because there's zero demand. So the price of pretty much everything now is between 20 to 100 percent below what it was. So we're in a massive deflationary scenario that's been forced on us, but it's going to change as soon as we leave and, and, and as soon as the economy reopens, we don't really know what prices are going to look like. Now, to your point on a macroeconomic level, the, the fortunate thing we have, it's both fortunate and unfortunate, but there's such huge demand for the U.S. dollar. The U.S. dollar is the flight to safety for the wealthy in China, the wealthy in the Middle East, the wealthy in Europe, that that keeps naturally our interest rates low and it keeps people buying other countries buying our debt so that sort of avoids too much inflationary pressure but an economy is only as good as the goods and services it produces people pay for those goods and services in dollars and that's why the dollar is valuable because it buys u.s goods and services but ultimately if you're just throwing a trillion dollars a month out there and you're not producing any goods and services Sooner or later, everyone's going to look around and say, "Well, why are we, why are we giving so many of our, much of our currency to the dollar? The dollar is sort of worthless." Now, the, the, what will avoid that? The sooner the economy reopens, the better. Every month we wait, the economy comes closer and closer to uh, uh, the twilight zone, where, where we don't really understand what's going to happen next. If the economy were to open this morning, we can probably start to guess what what industries are going to fail, what industries are going to succeed, and we'll come back to some sort of normal. The short-term stimulus will kick in. That's the, uh, the direct-to-your-bank-account uh, $1,200 checks that are going to everybody and the PPP loans that are going to small businesses. That's the short-term stimulus. The long-term st stimulus is the Fed rate cuts, and that'll kick in, let's say, within 12 months. Uh, so we have short and long-term stimulus that will beef up the economy, and the hope is that we, we didn't miscalculate and rely on the kindness of others too much to, to support our dollar, and you know hopefully the economy comes back intact. James Altucher, he is a hedge fund uh, manager, author, podcaster, uh, book in, uh, his book, Choose Yourself, and many books, many podcasts, many things, yes. Mr. Mr. Altucher, a jack, a jack of all trades, a James of all trades. Yes. D dilettante of everything, master of nothing. Yeah, well, we, we have the same first name technically, so that that speaks well to you. So let me uh, let me ask about what you, you had a thread I found really interesting, and I think some of these some of this audience is really going to agree with it, and they're going to probably going to disagree with some of it. But that's great. We like we like to spark ideas here and and spark debate. Uh, myths that we have learned as a function of this lockdown. Myths about ourselves and about society. I just what what are some of the myths? You know, the, the top ones. I know you had a whole bunch. Well, I think that I think there was this myth that uh, we have to be in a location to work or to learn. Like, look, you know, it's clear now the, the, the tide has come in 
And the first institution, group, first group of institutions standing naked are uh, institutions of higher learning, colleges. Like colleges were charging seventy thousand a year, and suddenly they said, "Oh, by the way, we were you could just go home and learn by yourselves, but we're keeping the money. Don't worry about it. You'll get your degree, but just go home and play with your little friends, bother your parents, get your grandparents sick. You get out of the dorm rooms, by the way, because we don't want your your petri dish of disease infecting our dorm rooms. But don't ask for your rent back because that money is ours now. Business 101, we took that money from you and possession is nine tenths of the law. So I don't know, like everybody's le leaving college and they're supposed to take courses online. I've seen some of these online courses. I would rather take a course for $10 on Coursera or LinkedIn Learning or Khan Academy. Like. Why did anybody pay seventy thousand a year for four years to to learn to get a degree that says, "Oh, I learned East Asian studies"? Like it's ridiculous. Well, they, well, they're credential. They're really credentialing their credentialing programs, which is especially I think that's been better known for a long time about some of the more flimsy master's programs in the humanities. But now people are realizing, well, it's like an arms race, right? If everybody has a four-year liberal arts degree of some kind, the value in the marketplace of just having that degree is not the same as it used to be. No, I mean, in this, already you're seeing, you know, skills and ideas are the currency of the 21st century, not a degree from whatever, you know, school. And I'm even talking right up to Harvard. Like Harvard, there's always a credentialing where there's some status thing, so other people who, who think that they're higher status will, will hire you. But look, Harvard, they just took, uh, they have a $41 billion endowment, you know, until they were kind of caught red-handed, they were they, they took $9 million from the last stimulus package, supposedly to give to students needing financial Yeah, tr Trump says they're going to give it back, by the way. <laughs> he said that last, the, uh, yeah. the, earlier so in the week. Guess what the head of the Harvard Endowment makes per year? He makes, guess what, $9 million. Oh, it's a payment protection program. Let's protect the pay of one employee, the guy who runs all of our money. So it, it's just... You know, that's that's a big myth. And then there's the myth that you have you, you can't work remotely and be productive. You know, right now, I, I think anything with the word remote in it is is going to be supercharged. And, and there's both upside and downside to that. We're going to be able to be more flexible about our work hours, more flexible about where we work, more flexible about travel. But at the same time, you have to ask, what's going to happen to commercial real estate? And by the way, not that we have to care that much, but everything in the economy is linked. So WeWork clearly is gonna go out of business after this. Like they're, they are bankrupt and SoftBank pulled the plug on funding. So WeWork is the biggest uh, lease, leasee, I don't know what you call it. They, they rent the most floors in New York City of any other company. So if you own a skyscraper in New York City and you're heavily leveraged and you have to make your own mortgage payments and WeWork suddenly disappears and they rented eight floors in your building, you might be out of business. You can't just replace them the next day with with, with a renter. So, and that's we were. And then there's all the restaurant storefronts. Not every restaurant is coming back to business in in urban areas and maybe all over the country. So this, you know, 10 million restaurants on average they had 16 days of cash in the bank. Restaurants are out of business in this country right now. And so now, yes, they'll be helped by the stimulus package. But guess what? The stimulus package, at least initially, went to the Shake Shacks and uh, Ruth Chris Steakhouses of the world, and this mom and pop small restaurants are out of business. I know because all the GoFund, I own a local 
store for business in New York City. All I see all the local GoFundMe's being, you know, from the employees of all the different restaurants and businesses, restaurants, but that you and I have even been to, and they're all out of business. So what are going to happen to those buildings who are no longer getting the fifteen to twenty thousand dollars in rent a month that those restaurants were getting? So commercial real estate is going to collapse, and we're going to have like a mini financial collapse after we reopen the economy just on the basis of that. So. You know, I think I think a lot of things are going to be both good in that you know we'll reopen the economy. People will have an opportunity to really decide what they want to do. They probably changed habits, so they didn't spend as much. They didn't go out as much. Hopefully, they'll start spending and going out again. But some people won't, and that might be a good thing for them. But the other thing is, uh, you know, it's going to be quickly everything that was going to eventually happen, like the demise of yeah, they, they've accelerated. They've accelerated the clean, the cleaning out of a lot of the economy in, in ways that's going to be very tough. Okay, James, so we, we were talking about some of the myths, some of the changes in society. I, I want to ask you a broad question. Then we can drill down into some more specifics here. Uh, there, it seems to me that there can be an overall reaction to what we're seeing at the national level of either, wow, the government is really actually quite incompetent, uh, pretty much across the board, Yes, the government can spend a whole lot of money, but that comes with its own that comes with its own costs, quite clearly. Um, but beyond that, the government is not some all seeing, all knowing protector that keeps you safe and warm at night. So there's some people that might have a, a, a more individualistic anti-government perspective. And then others are going to say, oh, look at this. When things get really tough, now everybody all of a sudden needs the big government to swoop in and save them. And, oh, why can't we have a UBI, you know, universal basic income, if the government can just write checks? Why can't we give everybody a, a $25 minimum wage if the government can just write checks? How do you see that balance playing out? Yeah, that's it's such, such an interesting topic because somehow or other this virus became so incredibly partisan. Like before Trump even mentioned it, a lot of people were talking about the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine. Like Elon Musk had mentioned it. You know, the CDC was looking into it as, as early as 2005 that hydroxychloroquine might have an effect on SARS. And of course, in Africa, where it's uh, a powerful anti-malarial drug, people were saying it also has some antiviral properties. And this is a drug that's been around since the 1940s. It's FDA approved. It's with medical supervision. It's always been safe. And as soon as Trump mentioned it, and by the way, I'm not saying people should take this drug or not. I'm just noticing that as soon as Trump mentioned it, everybody who was anti-Trump was saying, hydroxychloroquine will kill you. And everybody who was pro-Trump was saying, we found the cure. Yeah. So it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's really disturbing to me that, that's such an important issue that's now affecting billions of people. And I'm not just talking about the virus, but also the economic shutdown, because that, you know, every percent loss in GDP costs lives, and that has to be factored into these decisions. Everything has become so partisan. If, if Trump wanted to keep the economy closed, I bet you the opposite side, keep it, open it up. We've got to open it up. If Trump wanted to, when Trump put on the China ban, they were going to make a ban of bans. And, and by the way, I'm not saying everything Trump did was great and everything the Democrats did was bad and vice versa. I just wish it hadn't gotten partisan because I think what happened was is that we had all of these bogus mathematical models made by healthcare officials who, by the way, didn't really seem to understand math very well. And the models were crap, right? Wait, can I just, the, the models were crap. Yeah. Right? There's no there's no doubt now. I mean, if you look back at them and yet we're supposed to skip past that, these models were used as the primary data point to justify the lockdowns. Why, why isn't it relevant if the models were garbage? Because they were garbage. 
They were garbage. And and models models are not always supposed to be correct. They're they're models. They're not scientific law. And you know, it's it's like saying in 2006, well, my mathematical model said, you know, mortgages there'll never be more than one percent of mortgages defaulting. That's what all the models said in 2006, and that's what led to the housing crash in 2008. So. You know, models aren't supposed to be correct, but they were just basic mathematical sixth grade principles that were not followed in many of these models. Like they kept saying this virus is exponential and it was, but exponential when you have a limited population doesn't mean exponential forever. It means you have to model how many times it doubles before it starts to flatten. That's called exponential with a sigmoidal curve. I have a math background and, and that's what happens in a an exponentially growing situation with a bounded population. We were bounded by the number of people in the population. We were bounded by the demographics of the virus. It turns out it mostly, it mostly affects severely uh, the elderly. Uh, we were bounded by uh, demographics, by temperatures. For all we know, we were bounded by uh, pre-existing conditions. So we were bounded by herd immunity. So, so we don't know all the boundaries, but it certainly was not exponential. So every model, 100% of the models were wrong. Even on March 25th, the model that the White House is still currently using was predicting 60,000 hospitalizations in New York City by April 1st, six days later. Six days later, there were only 12,000 hospitalizations. How could they be 80% wrong in six days? What kind of math are they using? They're using like a... Well, that, but I mean, to your point about the using abacus. Yeah, I mean, to the point about the partisanship too. It was as soon as this came up, and I've seen that particular loss. There, there are many of the IHME models when you look at them, and they're wrong not just a little bit in advance. They're wrong day of, and continue to be wrong. And and the people will dismiss this who predictably, you know, somehow the, the models that justified the lockdown be, uh, fell into the anti-Trump uh, camp. And so people that don't like the president, when you point out these models are wrong, jump all over you and say that grandma wants to die. Meanwhile, the models are wrong. Right. So, I mean, you can't claim to be somebody who cares about facts and numbers and logic. And then when this happens, just dismiss it because you don't like it. Right. Like, like I, if I'll post something and this is this is a uh, third rail. If I post something like, oh, the economy needs to reopen because whether or not you even believe in the models, it's clear we quote unquote flatten the curve. Like the, the whole purpose of flattening the curve was so the hospitals wouldn't be overwhelmed. We don't, the hospitals are empty, right? So in, in 48 states, the hospitals are completely empty. In New York City, they're, they're clearly not overwhelmed. We never used the Javits Center or the USS Comfort or the uh, tents. And I visited the tents in Central Park, they were empty. And so, so but if you mention all oh, the economy should reopen, People will say, oh, you believe in the stock market over your grandma's death? And I'm like, no, the, the economy pays for health care. You don't, you don't have doctors and ventilators without an economy. They're, they're intertwined. You can't shut down an economy. What you've done is you've killed the economy. And maybe the, the I'm not even going to call it the stimulus package. The Band-Aid package that has been put together is keeping the patient alive on life support, which is the economy. But... We don't know if it's going to stimulate because the, we have to see if this patient can even get off of life support now. The economy has been has been really hurt and damaged. And, you know, again, if you say, oh, well, maybe we should reopen, and, and people start yelling at me. One person who I really respect, a really smart guy, called me and said, you know, 
I, I've been calling this since the beginning. I'm an, I'm kind of an expert. And I'm like, no, you're not. You're a TV show producer. You're not an expert. And he's like, well, well what about all the people who are going to die? And I'm like, well, what about the people we know? We know it's a fact when there's, when the economy suffers, there's more suicides, there's more domestic violence, there's more child abuse, there's more deaths from stress and mental health. Not to forget, not to forget also there's collateral fatalities. When you shut down the hospitals to elective procedures, well, guess what's elective? If you have stage three liver cancer and you need to get a test to find out if you've gone to, from stage three to stage four, which you're now terminal, that was elective. You couldn't get that test. You still can't get that test in 49 of the 50 states. So you can't tell me this doesn't have collateral fatalities that are much, much bigger than what we've now seen as the coronavirus fatalities. What do you think should be done? Like, explain to me if I made you, and it feels like everyone these days, at least on Twitter, thinks that they are the coronavirus czar, right? Like, everyone's got all the answers all the time. And if you point out that they were wrong yesterday, they just, again, they yell that, you know, you just want grandma to die. This has become, this is the bush slide babies died of, of the coronavirus epidemic. And, and I, I would just want to know what you think, and I'm asking, you right? I want to know what you think should be done now uh, in order to get things back up and running, what what does that look like, and and how do we, as a society, on on an individual level, what should we be prepared for to be different and maybe not different? Like, where should we just recognize that there are risks in life, and we got to be willing to take them? Right. So, two good questions. So, if it, if it was up to me, and of course it isn't, but but I have written to as many people as I know in the current administration that I could. But if it was up to me. And this is not being insensitive about coronavirus, I might add, but I, the coronavirus has already peaked in at least 48 or 49 of the 50 states. It's also peaked in New York City. I would reopen the economy immediately. I, I would, I would, you know, like, and now we have the examples of other countries that have successfully reopened or it seems like successfully reopened. I probably keep masks like many of the Asian countries do, not for 100% of the time, but if you're in crowds, uh, I would quarantine, obviously, anybody who has symptoms. But, you know, you're going to find out after this is all said and done that 100 million people got infected and most of them were asymptomatic. And by the way, most of them did not spread the virus. Everyone says asymptomatic people spread the virus. That is true only if you're, like, spending six hours a day with asymptomatic people who are rubbing themselves all over you. So unless you're like hanging out in a whorehouse. That's not enough social distancing, by the way. Not enough social distancing. You can't have people rub themselves all over you. That's a no-no. Dr. Burks told me. Right. You got to spend, you got to stay at least six inches apart from from someone who's asymptomatic. And the the reality is we don't even know about social distancing. So, but keep keep a mask because if you have symptoms and you cough on someone, they're going to get it. But here's, here's the only thing we know about spreading this disease. If you're around someone with severe symptoms and you're around them quite a bit, you're probably going to get it and you might get severe symptoms as well, which is why, sadly, the healthcare workers who are treating the patients with severe symptoms are also now getting. Well, this is like, a, like an epidemiologist friend of mine, because I do have some an infectious disease specialist, actually. I mean, he the same idea, the same thing. I mean, he, he told me that we always forget about two things when we're talking about transmissibility and, and all the, that there is duration of exposure and degree of exposure. 
How so? This is what you're saying. Right. How long are you in the room with somebody, and are they like pretty healthy, but have like a little bit of COVID that's coming out a little bit in some of you know their, if they cough or something, or are they just like uh, you know a COVID machine spewing it out right into your face because you're a doctor or a nurse trying to tend to them? That doesn't just affect the the chances of you getting the virus, according to this doc I talked to. It can affect the severity of the virus you get, which makes sense. Well, well, and 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 bug. It's not just anecdotal, like. In- and, and this is why the, where the media disturbs me um, when when you see all the headlines in all the different major media outlets about you know Imperial College says there might be 2.2 million deaths now in the UK blah blah blah. Well, at Imperial College also there was a study done and, and research released like maybe it was two weekends ago, three weekends ago, where they did all this testing at least on mice, where they basically showed exactly what your friend said. They did every configuration of. Let's give this mouse severe symptoms and put them right next to this other mouse. Okay, now let's do asymptomatic, put it next to this, asymptomatic, put it next to an older mouse. And it's exactly what you would expect. The worst case scenario is someone who has a lot of symptoms is basically coughing on you for six hours and you have pre-existing conditions. That's the worst case scenario. And all the way in the spectrum to, you know, an asymptomatic person passes you in the street, you're not going to get it. Oh, but it stays in the air for 27 feet. So what? Just because I breathe in a nanoparticle of coronavirus doesn't mean I'm going to well, but, end up in but, a So, well, well, you know, you got people in the city who are now jogging. They're jogging with masks on. I mean, I, mean, I saw this and I was just thinking... Yeah. This is first of all, I feel like someone's going to get some form of like, uh, you know, self CO2 poisoning or something. This is crazy to be you're jogging with a mask on. I mean, that first of all, there's no yeah, I don't even like walking with a mask on. From, right. More people are going to die from jogging in New York City than die from coronavirus. Like and again, I'm not I don't mean to make light of it. It's a serious it's, it's as serious as if I was talking about, you know, two million people a year die from diarrhea. That's serious, too. And and, and someone said to me, oh, but diarrhea is not infectious. Are you kidding me? Do you want to stand next to someone with diarrhea? Let's see if you get it as well. I don't mean to be gross, but uh, so I would reopen things instantly. And by the way, if you're elderly, you could stay in or not. Here's your chances of dying if you're elderly. Two in 100,000 in the U.S. So again, like the flu. And I'm not saying this is like the flu. It's a third rail. But we there's 7,500 deaths a day in the United States. If anything, you know, we actually don't know how many deaths have been happening now because so many people have not been allowed to go to the doctor or the hospital, but, and all the numbers like suicides are underreported and so on. But you look at like mental health hotlines in Indiana, they have a hotline 211. They used to get a thousand calls a day. Now they're getting 25,000 calls a day and it's mostly suicide related. Uh, the Bronx in New York City, uh, they've gone up sixfold the number of calls they're getting about reporting child abuse situations. So there are horrible ramifications of what's been going on. So to stop those ramifications, to stop this extra 6x child abuse, to stop the suicides, to stop collateral fatalities from people who can't go to the hospital, you have to reopen the economy and, and get people's stress levels back to normal, their mental health back to normal. Coronavirus has already peaked anyway in the United States. And so now you ask, what's going to be the new abnormal or the new normal, whatever you want to call it. I think people, I think people at first will be reluctant to go out to a restaurant. I don't think anybody's starting a restaurant in New York City anytime soon. I do think there's going to be a lot of office closures, restaurant closures, store closures, and so on, just because they, they did not get their small business loans. They went out of business. They can't afford their rent. And again, the average restaurant in the U.S. is only 16 days of cash. 
which means they're already bankrupt. Many of them are not getting small business loans because this, this, this 10 million restaurants, they only are gonna give out loans to two or three million small businesses. So you're out of luck if you don't get one. Not everyone is getting one. They act like everyone's getting one. Not everyone's getting one. So uh, again, I think at first there's gonna be a weird new normal, but then I'm, I'm hoping, and again, this is where I don't know comes in. There's a lot of uncertainty. What I'm hoping for is that we're like drug addicts coming out of rehab. So when we first go to rehab, we're still addicted to our drugs. And then by the end of rehab, we say, oh, I'm never using drugs again. And then after a month or two, going back to your friends and going back to the same location, you start becoming a drug addict again. And so I'm hoping that the stimulus combined with that sort of uh, you know, rule of human behavior will kick in and, and we'll start going to restaurants, we'll start having normal behavior again, and the stimulus will kick in, money will be flowing. You know, and in terms of the money printing, the economy will probably spend about $3 trillion less this quarter. So this stimulus, for better or for worse, is just, is just replacing that $3 trillion. And fortunately, again, countries around the world are willing to help us by still uh, uh, lending to us and purchasing our T-bills and so on. Everybody loves the U.S. dollar, fortunately, so that'll keep inflation pressure down. And the fact that we're just simply replacing dollars that would have been spent will keep inflation down. UBI, you know, in the future, I mean, I do agree we probably needed it for these months just because nobody wanted to be out of work. So yeah, the government should pay us to stay home. And fortunately, again, we have the kind of economy that can afford that. But long term, I don't know how you can justify affording that unless, you know, I, I also sort of think we should start thinking about selling off U.S. property. Like, why do we own all the highways? Why do the states and the federal government own the, the, the federal highways, the state highways, and so on? The states should start selling their, their public colleges before it's too late. Like, imagine if New York sold the whole SUNY system to somebody. They could probably get a, a decent price for it, but in 10 years, that, that SUNY system might be out of business. So I think, I think that's another way the U.S. government can kind of... Uh, the U.S. government should totally legalize marijuana to help you know, raise new taxes and from, from a new industry and, and uh, uh, help pay for the stimulus. And I think we'll start seeing, again, everything that was going to happen in five to 10 years anyway is going to happen within the next year. So marijuana is going to be legalized nationally. Colleges, people are going to start to really suspect, hey, is this worth it? Uh, home ownership is a joke. Everybody, you and I both know everybody who was like, I'm a proud New Yorker, they left New York the second uh, the second there was one case of coronavirus in New York. So both, they, the whole home ownership wasn't anything. And by the way, what's going to happen to real estate prices? Nobody's going to be that eager, eager to move into an expensive apartment in New York City knowing that uh, the second wave of coronavirus might hit any day and they're going to have to abandon their homes again. So I think real estate's going to be in flux for a while as well. All right, James Altucher, everybody. Check him out, uh, The James Altucher Show. Uh, it's a podcast. Also follow him on Twitter. I do. Follow him on social media. Check out his books. James, great to talk to you, man. Come back and hang with us soon. Yeah, fuck, anytime. Thanks for having me on the show.